We're now going to have our reading, which begins in Exodus chapter 20, um, which can be found on page 78 of your pew Bible. There's going to be a few jumpy rounds uh, whenever I read this, so I'll tell you where we go. We're going to start in 20, verse 22, um, and I'm going to read to 21, verse 11, and then we're going to go over to um, chapter 23, start at verse 1, and then I'll tell you where we go from that. So I'm going to start um, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. Idols and altars. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you, if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year he shall go free, paying anything without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an oil. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as men servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment um, of money. And then to Exodus 23, beginning at verse 1. Laws of justice and mercy. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the righteous. Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens because you were aliens in Egypt. 
For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and leave your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. And down to verse 20. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away the sickness from among you and no one will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Amen. Evening, everyone. Um, If you would turn back to Exodus uh, chapter 20, it's probably a good place to to begin. We will be jumping around a bit this evening because we've got quite a large section to cover, but that's a good place to start. Um, Let me uh, get going by asking you how you'd define your relationship with God. What, what, would you, what words, what phrases would you want to use to talk about what it means for you to have a relationship with God? Well, if you look at the New Testament, one of the things that comes up over and over again in some of the letters is, is three words. Faith, love, and hope. Three really big words for us in terms of describing what a relationship with God is meant to look like. Three very big words, aren't they? Three words that can sometimes feel a bit vague, a bit hard to actually pin down. What is faith exactly? What does it really mean to to trust God? What does that look like? What does it really mean to love other people? How do we do that? What does it really mean to live uh, in light of our future hope? Sometimes those words can almost feel like you're trying to nail jelly down to a wall. What, What is faith, love and hope? 
Well, last Sunday morning, we saw that the Lord has brought Israel, his people, carried them on eagle's wings to the foot of Sinai, and he's called them to enter into a covenant relationship with him. He said that if they respond to his grace and live it out in their lives, they will be a holy people, a kingdom of priests where everyone is holy and has access to the Lord. And at the core of this relationship, uh, we heard that God gave them the Ten Commandments, these ten words, spelling out what it means for them to live as God's holy people. And tonight's section that we just read some samples on earlier uh, follows directly on from that. And what this is doing, I suppose in a nutshell, is you could say it's giving shape to that covenant relationship. It's, it's really putting flesh on the bones. The Ten Commandments are kind of like the bones, and all of this is the flesh. It's giving us the detail of what a covenant relationship with the Lord was meant to look like. So what does life as a priest in God's holy kingdom look like day in, day out, year after year? Well, the answer is, and you'll know this if you've been able to read this through over the last week in our reading plan, lots and lots of nitty-gritty detail. Uh, There's all sorts of things about altars and sacrifices, slavery, donkeys, mothers and fathers, What happens if you loan an animal to somebody and they lose it or it dies? Uh, What should you do when you come across some meat in a field and you fancy eating it? What should you do about that? Lots and lots of very practical nitty-gritty details. I suppose the big point that we can make straight away is God cares about the details. God cares about all the intricacies of his people's lives. Holiness is not just worked out in some big, vague thing. It's worked out in the details of our lives. Covenant life, life with God, walking with him in the covenant of peace, is about whole life worship. If you're going to be a priest, if you're going to be holy, if you're going to be one of God's special people, then you're going to have to think about how you worship him in all the little details of your life. Now, immediately as we, as we come to these, these uh, rules and these laws, we immediately kind of ask ourselves, but hang on a second, is there really much we can get out of them? Because they seem like they might be past their sell-by date. Uh, We know that these laws were important for a time, but the Bible stories moved on a long way from that. And to be honest, these laws do seem like they're miles away from our lives today, don't they? Uh, Some of them maybe even seem to be almost saying the opposite of what our Christian faith is all about. What has altars and slavery got to do with being a Christian today? But I think if we, if we ignore these laws, if we kind of just rule them all out because we think they're out of date, I think, well, actually, that would be a real shame. Because I think if we do that, we'll miss out on some of the most practical, down-to-earth teaching in the whole of the Bible. And maybe you got a sense of that as we were reading. So we've got these kind of very specific, focused laws that in some ways are really helpful because they're so practical, but in other ways, they maybe seem like they might just be only for a particular time. So I want to deal with that head-on as we look at this section. How can we kind of understand the relevance of these laws today? I think the big thing we need to say is that these laws, if you like, are specific applications of the Ten Commandments. Um, Now, just to show you that very quickly, uh, some of those laws, uh, it's really obvious which commandment they're coming out of. So 21.17, page 79, anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. That's literally like flipping around the uh, fifth commandment, isn't it? Honour your father 
and mother. Well, if you curse them, this law says you'll need to be put to death. I take it that that's a kind of, not sort of just saying a rude word about your parents once, but sort of a, a definite kind of consistent attitude of dishonouring your parents and treating them like nothing. Um, so that's, that's one of them. Um, 23 over the page, uh, 2 to 3. Do not follow the crowd in giving and uh, doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favouritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. That's pretty clearly picking up on the ninth commandment about not giving false testimony. And that's telling us that, that ninth commandment is, is about upholding justice generally. When you give your testimony in a law court, um, don't side with the crowd and don't even show favouritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. You might be tempted to kind of um, be favoritism, show favoritism to, to the guy who hasn't got very much. And th- this law warns us not to do that. Some of the other laws, you have to put a little bit more thought in to see how they're related to the Ten Commandments. But I'm pretty confident we could sit down and go through nearly all of these laws and see exactly which commandment, or maybe several commandments, they're, they're drawing on and offering applications of. And that's really valuable because the Ten Commandments, if we're honest, are very con- compact, aren't they? you know, really short. They're very condensed. And these laws are actually helping us to kind of unpack the full meaning of those Ten Commandments. And they're also valuable because we do deal with a lot of similar issues today. I guess not many of us uh, got here on a donkey, but maybe some of those laws about cars uh, would apply to to donkeys as well, although hopefully your car is less prone to wandering off than uh, many people's donkeys. Um, Nearly all of us, I guess, have had parents or do still have parents that we need to relate to. Um, Some of us will testify in court. How do you do that um, if you're a Christian? Well, these laws would have something to say to that. So these laws are going to help us to know what God's will is for quite specific situations that we still deal with today. And I think it's really important to recognise that these laws are not like a kind of a mixed bag of some really good laws and some laws that are quite not so good. All of them are perfect applications of the Ten Commandments to the specific situations that the people were living in. Um, Why can I be so confident of that? Well, have a look at 2022. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this. This is not stuff that Moses has made up. This is not Moses' attempts to kind of work out what the Ten Commandments means. This is God, the God of Sinai, perfectly expounding his law for the particular situation that the Israelites were in at that time. Now, it's important that we're very clear that we're not under these laws today. These are laws that were relevant for the nation of Israel. They were on the kind of statute book of the nation of Israel. And they don't apply like that to us today. But each of them is still a perfect application of God's eternal law given in the Ten Commandments. And so there's going to be something that we can learn from each one. Each one, if you like, is like a little nugget of divine wisdom, unpacking for us the practical meaning of the Ten Commandments, giving giving concrete shape to our life with the Lord in the covenant of peace. So we're not going to obviously be able to look at all of these laws tonight and see that, but we don't have to just make a random selection either. There's actually a really careful structure 
to this section of the Bible, which I've been surprised by because I always thought it was very higgledy-piggledy, but it's really careful. Um, so what I want to do is try and show you some of the structures tonight and then just draw out a few examples from each of those uh, sections that we look at uh, to get a taste of what uh, this is saying. So let's have on the screen the diagram of the kind of the big structure of these chapters. Um, so you've got four big blocks of, of content, uh, and they're covering three different areas of life in the covenant relationship. So the first section uh, is 20, 22 to 26, that little bit about idols and altars. And that's really addressing the Israelites' vertical relationship with God. How do they live uh, towards God in particular? We, we can say that that's addressing their faith. How is their faith going to be expressed in their worship and their piety? Um, and then there's another section about that then um, in 23, 10 to 19. And those are the bits that we looked at this morning about the Sabbath and the festivals. Okay, So that is kind of bookending the, the large section there in the middle, the pink section, which is all about the horizontal relationship, about how do we love our neighbor. And that's running from 21.1, where it says these are the laws you are to set before them, or judgments is probably a better word, specific applications of the law. And that runs from 21.1 all the way through to 23.9. So you get that? So you've got two sections on faith, vertical relationship to God, bookending the large section on the horizontal relationship with our neighbor. And then a final concluding section, that section about the angel going before the people, um, that's about the future uh, of, the, of the people and how they are to live in light of those promises about the future. So I've called that section hope. Okay? So these, these laws, these four chapters or so, are spelling out quite specifically, in quite a lot of detail, what it looks like for the Israelites to have a relationship with God that is shaped by faith, love, and hope. So I think we might be able to learn something from that. I think we might be able to learn what, what our relationship with, with the Lord is meant to look like. Perhaps we can learn something about our own faith and how it should be expressed. Something about what it means for us to love our neighbor. Uh, what it means for us to live with the Lord who is the God of all hope. So we're going to look at each of these three sections very briefly at the last one. And we're going to try and see how the law was uh, giving shape to these three things, faith, love, and hope, and how it might do so for us today. So firstly then, um, let God's holy law give shape to our faith. So we looked at the festivals, that second section of that this morning. So we'll, we'll go back to the first section uh, tonight, the idols and altars section, that's page 78. Uh, what shape was Israel's faith meant to, what shape was faith meant to take in Israel's particular situation? Have a look at verse 24. 20:24. The Lord says to Moses to tell the people, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. So this is pretty clearly an application of the second commandment. You see that just right there above verse 23. Don't make gods alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Instead, make this an altar of earth. And two things to notice um, from this verse. Firstly, the promise. Look across there to the second commandment in 20, verse 4. 
And you'll see in the middle of that long verse, uh, don't bow down to idols, things you've made with your hands, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing this sin for generation after generation. So the Lord says, don't make idols because I'm a jealous God. I care passionately about my reputation. And if you try to picture me in any way, you will actually end up limiting me. And remember, I'm the God who dwells in the burning bush in flames of fire. I am the God who is who he is. You cannot ever picture me. I'm jealous about my reputation. So there's a kind of a warning attached to the second commandment. But now we get a sort of a more positive uh, statement. Um, God says, I will cause my name to be honoured. And wherever my name is honoured, I will bless you. So we don't make... um, I know here... Um, so I take it that this is, this is a promise that isn't just for these Israelites. It seems to be quite a general promise. It's, it's phrased so broadly, isn't it? Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. And because it's like a positive version of the second commandment, which are these ten words that are for all time, it really does look as though this is something we can take for us today, pretty, straight, pretty simply. This little law is reminding us that honouring God's name in our public worship and in our private devotions is really important. It's a very simple but crucial point. Right worship and blessing from God go hand in hand. God blesses us when we worship him rightly. And we kind of know that we are being blessed by God when we do worship him rightly because he says he's going to cause that to happen. And of course, that's the kind of the point, I suppose, that the big section, the big structure is making, isn't it? We begin with stuff on the vertical relationship with God. We then move to some stuff at the end on the vertical relationship with God. Because our faith, our public worship, how our faith is expressed, is really the heartbeat of what it means to be living in the covenant with God. Really simple point, but we need to make it, don't we? If we believe that this is how the Lord's blessing comes in our lives then our lives are actually going to take a certain shape. We're going to care deeply about honouring God's name here on Sundays, in our devotions, in our organisations through the week because we know that's how God's blessing comes. That's the kind of the lifeblood, if you like, of walking with the Lord. The Father, Jesus tells us, is seeking true worshippers Worship should be right at the centre of our lives because it is right at the centre of God's purposes for his covenant people. It is how he's going to bless us. But not just any old worship. True worship. Worship that honours God's name. So that brings us to the second thing that we need to pull out of this little verse. Uh, There's some specific commands here about altars and sacrifices. And this is how God wanted Israel to honour his name at this point in time, in their situation. So let's focus on the altars. I don't know about you, but I find it really striking. How does the Lord say that we're going to honour his name if we're, if we're putting our shoes, ourselves in the shoes of an Israelite? By, by gathering up some earth, some mud, and making a kind of like a table like this, an altar to offer sacrifices on. A mud altar. I mean, you wouldn't make it up, would you? You would never think this would be a great way to honour the Lord of hosts. Let's pile up some mud, guys, and offer some sacrifices on it. Um, The Lord even says, verse 25, if you must make an altar of stones for me, 
Uh, don't build it with dress stones or kind of hewn stones. Um, don't sculpt them to make them look attractive. You'll actually end up defiling it. Um, don't be tempted to kind of raise this altar up and have some kind of fancy steps going up to it. Because, uh, well, you're gonna, you might expose your nakedness on it. I'll leave you to work out how that would, how that would have worked. But the point is, the, people, the Lord can understand that people are going to be tempted to kind of add a few gimmicks to their worship, sort of dress up things a little bit. And the Lord says, no, I don't want that. And although more elaborate things will be added on top of this uh, later on in Exodus, at the essence of Israel's worship is, is this really simple mud altar or stone altar, undressed stone, something that you could trace back all the way to the beginning of the Bible with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's, it's this simple coming to the Lord, um, offering sacrifices on this very simple altar. Of course, that's total opposite to the nations, isn't it? With their flashy gods of silver and gold. Why? Well, because the nations need to try to conjure something up in their worship. Because they don't have a God who is the one who is. They've got a God who isn't, or certainly isn't much of a God. But Israel's God is the one who appeared in the flames of fire in the burning bush. You can't picture him, and you don't need to, because he's everywhere, and he's with us, and he's powerful. So faith took this particular shape in Israel. They honoured the Lord in their public worship on a very simple mud altar. Now, we don't make altars anymore. This is a table, not an altar. So how is this relevant? Um, well, it seems to me that the Lord is still going to be honoured by simple worship. Worship that doesn't kind of add anything on to what he's told us to do. It doesn't add any gimmicks. Uh, because this law is like an application of the, of the second commandment. Um, don't make idols don't kind of try to make up how you're going to worship me. Worship me the way I've told you. Just do what I've said. And if anything, our worship now as Christians, I think, is probably even more simple, isn't it, than what it was for Israel. The book of Hebrews um, outlines all the amazing spectacles of worship in the Old Testament. The, the smells and sounds of the animals being sacrificed, the, the sight of the gold the touch of the fine linen of the priests. And the apostle says, don't be tempted to go back to that. Because we've got something much better now. The Lord Jesus is our once-for-all sacrifice. He's now sat down at God's right hand in heaven. And now we've got the spirit of grace coming to us to cleanse our hearts and to lead us up into the heavenly throne room. So we don't need flashy worship. We don't need to kind of add anything on. Just as the Israelites didn't need to kind of make their altars look really nice or add some steps, we don't need to flash up our worship because we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got Jesus at the right hand of God. Now we could talk all night about what kind of worship maybe we should be pursuing, but this is not the place for that. We just need to see that there's this big point. God's people don't have to make up how to worship him. The second commandment is going to give particular shape to 
are expressions of faith, both for Israel and for us today. We worship God in the way that he's told us to. Okay, that's the, that's the first one then. God's law gives shapes, shapes, shape to our faith. Um, secondly, God's law can give shape to our love as well. So now we're talking about these horizontal relationships. And Christ summed up what the law had to say about this. He said, love your neighbour as yourself. The Apostle Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then he lists out the Ten Commandments and says, these are here to help you to love, essentially. But as we look at these laws that we read tonight, I'm sure many of us will be thinking, but these look incredibly unloving, don't they? Well, um, in the summer, we actually looked at one specific law that's quite famous, quite controversial, the law about um, taking an eye for an eye if there's permanent bodily damage. Um, And we saw that the Lord doesn't kind of get rid of that that law at all. When he discusses it in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually upholds that principle uh, in the law. Um, So we looked at that quite closely, and if you're interested, you can find the sermon on the website if you look that up. Um, So tonight, we're not going to kind of focus in too much. We're going to keep our eyes on the big picture of this section, Uh, but I think that will help us to kind of get a sense of how this law is loving. And what what I've discovered that um, I think is very important is that these laws fall into two quite separate groups, and both of them help us to love our neighbour, but they do it in very different ways. So firstly, you've got laws that are limiting evil. And these are the judgments. Uh, They come in uh, chapter 21, verse 1, and they go through to 22.20. Now, you'll not see a division in your Bible here, but um, for for various reasons, that's that's quite a clear-cut division. Because nearly all of the judgments section that limit evil are, are, are written like this. If such and such happens then you must do such and such. And the thing that happens is bad. And normally then there's going to be some sort of punishment or or demand for restitution or something like that. Um, So you can see some typical examples in uh, 21.12. Anybody who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. So there's your application of the sixth commandment, do not murder. Um, and then you've got 21.26. If a man hits a maidservant, a manservant or a maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. Or 21.28. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten. Now, murder and bodily harm and bull goring is not encouraged, okay? It's really important that we remember the if there, or when this happens, this is what you need to do. When evil happens, which it will do in a fallen world, you need to take steps to try to limit that evil, to try to stop it spreading. And normally that's going to take the form of a punishment. And so these laws help us to to love our neighbour by providing appropriate responses to failures of love. Um, Now, let's have a look at the second group. Um, And these begin in 2021 and go through to 23.9. So you see that there's the second section there. Um, These laws are all about encouraging love. These laws are normally written as you shall not 
do such and such. And there's not a punishment attached. I don't think there's a punishment in any of this section that I've suggested because these laws are not enforced. So it's actually quite unhelpful that the heading of 23 there says laws of justice and mercy because they're not really laws. They're like encouragements. This is God telling Moses, encourage the people to be like this. And so uh, here's, a, here's a, a great one to have a look at, 23, 4 to 5. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you will help him with it. So that's Moses saying to the people, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. The Eighth Commandment is all about do not steal. And it says we should respect other people's property even to the point of returning the property that our enemy has lost. So if, uh, if somebody who, who you really struggle with in church leaves their iPhone in the pew tonight, I hope you'll run after them and give it back to them. Because you want to love your enemies, don't you? And this is a practical way to do that. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? You couldn't, you couldn't kind of consistently say, oh yes, I'm a really loving person and not do that for somebody. This law is kind of highlighting and saying, no, if you really claim to be somebody who loves people, then you have to do that, even if you hate them. Love your enemies. So this is not a set of kind of inferior laws that need to be improved. Uh, other laws uh, call God's people to not take vi- uh, bribes, 23.8, not to gossip, not to become loan sharks, 22.23, and not to eat roadkill, in case any of you were tempted to do that. So I wonder if you see why it's important to see these two groups of laws. When you flick through, you kind of think, oh, there's, there's so much dodgy stuff going on here, as well as some nice things. And you think it's kind of like a mixed bag. And thank goodness Jesus has come along and cleared it all up for us. But actually, it's much more structured than that. There's stuff that's bad that the law says, try to make that happen less. And then there's stuff that the law says, this is really good. Let's try and encourage this as much as we can in our society. Well, that then raises the question um, that many of us maybe have about the issue of slavery. How does that fit into this? Well, if you look back at, um, at the section on slavery in chapter 21 you'll see it's coming squarely in this, in this region of the judgments rather than the kind of moral encouragements. So I think we're fair to classify slavery as a, as a thing, as a kind of an evil that the Lord is wanting to limit. And in fact, we're told explicitly, 21.16, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he's caught must be put to death. Okay, so slavery is an evil that the Lord is wanting to restrict in the society of his people. But you might say to me, well, that's fair enough, but why didn't God just kind of outlaw it full stop? Why didn't he tell all the slave owners to release their slaves? Well, I don't know if there's a clear answer to that. I think we'd have to be speculating a bit. But I think it is important to remember that there are no kind of prisons in ancient societies. So if you got into debt and committed a minor offence and couldn't afford to pay the fine, then you could sell yourself into slavery. 
And that'd be a way of kind of doing time. And it was time limited, seven years, and then you go free at the maximum, unless you choose to stay with your master for life, as the law seems to think some slaves are going to want to do. Now, I don't have all the answers necessarily about this, but I think we can trust God that for this society at this time, this was the best system of dealing with some things. It wasn't something that the Lord thought was right to get rid of at this point in time. But I think it is fair to say, look, it's not something the Lord's encouraging either. It's something that's an evil that needs to be restricted. It's challenging stuff, though, isn't it? Particularly when you think about all of that stuff about loving your neighbour and that kind of thing. Trying to be a loving person, a holy person in all areas of life. Um, I've got a quote here from John Calvin, um, who summarises what God's law is saying as saying that our entire soul should be filled with feelings of love. He's particularly looking at the tenth commandment about do not covet. And he's saying even the least desire that we should have for our neighbour's donkey is a bad thing. Our entire soul should be filled with love. That's the teaching of the Ten Commandments, particularly as we see them unpacked in these laws. It's incredibly challenging. But think about what, what a great society it would have been. Could you imagine living in a world where every person's soul is filled with feelings of love? where every person keeps God's law. Now, you're probably all thinking, well, there'd be loads of slavery and there'd be loads of people uh, being stoned and all of that, but there wouldn't be because every person would have their soul filled with love because that's what God's law calls them to. And isn't it wonderful to think that we don't have to guess, or these people didn't have to guess, what to do about a lot of things. They had God spelling it out for them. And in, a, in an era today where even quite basic morality is being challenged all the time, where even people who are kind of like celebrities seem to be getting caught out about the, the latest thing that they shouldn't say uh, that was okay six months ago, what a great blessing to know that we as God's people have got these eternal principles, the Ten Commandments, that we can look to for guidance. And we've got this example of how to apply them to life. So that's a little bit of a sense of how the law could help us to uh, love our neighbour. Finally then, um, very briefly, let's have a look at how the law might give shape to our hope. So this is the final section there, 23, um, 20. God says, See, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way, and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. So here's the promise. This special angel is going to go with the people. And we've already met this angel. It's the angel of the Lord, the one who has God's name, who speaks for God, who is God. He's going to go with the people, and he's going to drive out the people's enemies, as they come into the promised land. Verse 31, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. 
And that promise then leads to a command. Verse 32. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Now, there is nothing wrong with making political treaties. And if anyone here is uh, from the EU or from the British government, feel free to make a treaty over the next wee while. That would be great. Um, But for Israel, it was not allowed to make covenants with other nations because they had this specific promise from the Lord, this specific hope. They had the angel of the Lord going ahead of them to clear out their enemies. So they didn't need to engage in kind of political negotiations and treaties. They were people with hope, and that hope was going to shape how they lived. And all I want to say here is that if we're still people of hope, then there are going to be some things that we do differently to the rest of the world. Things that only make sense because we are people who know that God is with us, who are looking forward to the coming again of the angel of the Lord in judgment as a refiner's fire and to rise with healing in his wings. That hope will give our lives a particular shape. And like Israel of old, we can see something of what that shape is through the law that's, uh, and these judgments that are spelled out here, and they can help us to understand what God's eternal law is. So I wonder, will you let your faith and your love and your hope be given concrete shape by the law of God? If you do, I think it will free you from the ever-changing mess that our culture is in, and it will help us to grow in our relationship with God as we follow the angel of the Lord, the only Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom and with whom be praise and authority to the Father, with the Holy Spirit, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray regularly for you to speak to us, We pray regularly that your word would dwell in us. And here we have a discussion of your law uh, given in the Ten Commandments that we often find scary and challenging because it is so specific. And Lord, as we think about how to live as people who keep your law, we pray that we would hear your word speaking to us and we pray that we would heed it. We pray that we would have a faith and a love and a hope that is guided by you, guided by these words from heaven, given wisdom by these specific applications that we have here in the Exodus. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be people who walk with you as your holy people, that that holiness would be attractive and that you would make our lives all to your praise and all to your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 145 will be used to guide our prayers. Let us pray. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Lord, from the psalmist we declare praise, and all at your name, of the wonders of who you 
Lord, the love you have shown us and your mighty hand that has both saved us and continues to uphold us. Lord, so often we forget to praise your name. The sorrows or stresses of life can cloud our eyes from seeing your majesty and forget how you save and uphold us. Lord, for this we are sorry. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you, seeing clearly who you are and who we are as your children. Lord, in the week to come, let us praise you and see your greatness in the things we enjoy and people we cherish this week, but also see your greatness and goodness sustaining us in the things we did not expect or want, or the struggles we would not choose, but you sustain and bless us through. Lord, you have compassion on all you have made. Your works praise you and tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Lord, we are so thankful for your compassion to us and yet at times we struggle to have compassion for others. We find it easy to show compassion to those that are like us, ways like us, think and speak like us, but at times it is harder to show love to those that are different to us, who have made choices we can't imagine making and we can struggle to show love as you would have us love. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your love, that we would love others, that those who encounter us in the humdrum of life would have an opportunity to encounter you, and we would be quick to tell of how you have worked in our lives, unashamed to speak about your mighty acts. Lord, we pray for the work of Thompson House, working with those with an offending history. It's not an easy work, and at times showing compassion to those that society has no time for is a weighty responsibility. The offences of the things people staying there have com committed, or the weight of the responsibility that comes with their job could be overwhelming for staff. But Lord, we pray that they would be working in your strength, with your compassion, and that those that know and love you would shine like a light in a dark place, acting as your hands and feet, where many of us would be scared to go, proclaiming your mighty acts and praising you for how you have worked in their lives. Lord, you are mighty in all your ways and loving towards all you have made. The Lord is near to all he call on him, to all he call on him in truth. We pray for Indonesia, Lord. Please use the money raised through things like the babies at lunch today and the moderator's appeal to provide relief and comfort to those who are struggling so greatly in the aftermath of the earthquake and tsunami. Lord, we pray for those working in Indonesia, trying to provide medical and practical care. We pray against the rapid spread of disease, spread of disease as people's clean water supply and sanitation is halted. Lord, thousands of miles away, we can feel helpless, but know we hand the situation into your hands of our loving God, who is mighty. Father, we pray for the church in Indonesia, small in number and yet growing as you draw many Muslims to you, as they call out to a God they do not yet know, and in return hear the truth of a God who loves and wants to be known. We pray as people ask difficult questions about the whys and why nots in times of devastation, your people will be equipped to share the everlasting hope and peace that comes from knowing the maker, sustainer of the universe who loves and sent his son to die to save us. Lord, let us not be quick to forget to pray for our brothers and sisters struggling in Indonesia or those suffering at this time and give us a burden to pray for your church. My mouth, will praise, well, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. 